0: Hey, thanks for tuning in. It's Craig here from Flying Vinyl and today we want us to do something a little bit different and introduce you not to an artist, but to the people at the helm of a whole load of different artists over the last 15 years. And that's the team at Transgressive Records. Now, you might remember back in April 2017, we let Transgressive take over our Flying Vinyl box set for the month and put out a load of exclusive tunes with their artists. Our mate Lisa Wright collaborates with them on all different stuff and she's also a journalist and a contributor to Time Out, DIY, NME, I mean you can find her work in loads of different places. So we thought she'd be the ideal person to go and have a chat with the team, which is led by Tim Dallow and Toby L. It's a really fascinating chat about how the label got going on beyond a shoestring budget uh, and more widely about where music's going as streaming's taken over uh, and how hard it is now to promote music as a label. Um, so it's really, really, really good stuff to listen to if, if anyone's interested in the business behind music. Enjoy!
1: So I guess we introduce that we are sitting in transgressive HQ with Tim and Toby, founders of the label, and Lila, who joins a partner very shortly after. Um, and we're going to have a lovely chat about um, the history of the label, which is now fourteen. years Yes, fourteen.
2: Going on fifteen, actually. So
3: next year we'll be fifteen. Yeah.
1: That's like having a child that's about ready to go. About ready about to, to, sign. to go. Yeah. Yeah. Scream at us. <laughs> or or leave home. Or
3: <laughs> about ready to sign. Yeah. <laughs> actually, that's yeah. true. We've been signing. Well, for, yeah, sign young bands. You.
1: Turbulent teenage years.
3: Yeah, yeah it's true.
1: Um, and obviously, we'll have a chat about the the children you're signing, the adults you have signed in the past, <laughs> the fetuses that you may wish to sign in the future. <laughs> yeah, you're making it
3: sound really creepy, now. It's but... now it's creepy.
1: <laughs>
3: Before it was borderline hinting creepy. But. Yeah. <laughs>
1: This is the tone of the interview, get used to it. Um, So, I guess it makes sense to start at the beginning. It is my favourite label origin story, being the indiest story of them all. That obviously you two met at a block party gig, which I love. Um, I guess at that point, um, did you have designs on running a label already, or did it just all stem from those kind of initial chats?
4: I I really wanted to start a label. Um, I didn't. I, I believed in like the importance of vinyl. I love doing seven inches. Um, I felt like there was a real space to do like something. I mean, we're quite different from the original idea of what we might be now. But to start what with was, it was the
1: original was, idea,
4: I think kind of like self-sufficient, like Discord records, Constellation, quite like punk DIY approach, but with a sense of ambition, that I think has sort of shifted as we've become better and less pretentious, probably. Um, <laughs> but um, to start with I really want to do that and then I met Toby who was one of the first people that really actively tried to discourage me so that made us do it together I wanted to rope him in
3: yeah which he did actually, eventually unfortunately yeah. I mean to be honest back then when you have no money and someone takes you for two pints of Garden and it costs about £9 for a round you're kind of like oh god I better do it then <laughs> uh, and, like, and that's the thing it's just like I, I came from like a not unlike you guys like I came from an editorial sort of writing background and Tim had done bits of that for a fanzine and I was very much enjoying kind of being an observer of music and, and the people around it and making I was at that point just starting to make TV documents stuff and things um, and putting on club nights and events and I was very much enjoying that kind of that side of it but I think when Tim and I sat down and spoke about it in great depth, what, what became clear to me as Tim's just articulated it then is that um, there's an artistry around uh, how music's brought to the world as much as there is, you know, sometimes you actually work with and you know, being part of that and nurturing artists' creativity and helping them fulfil their potential and helping them reach an audience, you know, it, it becomes a responsibility and something that we felt was, you know, maybe not at that time in the early two thousands being done fantastically well by a lot of labels we looked up to. Yeah. So we thought it was an opportunity to do something morally and musically interesting.
1: What was the kind of um, label scene at that point? So this is what, like, about 2005? 2003, 2004.
3: There were some good
4: things coming through, like, uh, I remember... Mostly from America, though. Yeah, but, I mean, I remember lots of labels were getting a kind of fresh start, so, like, Domino, which I'd always loved as, like, a licensing label, really, like like, bringing, like, Pavement over to the UK, Trail of Dead, Bonnie, Prince, Billy, all these amazing bands, they took a real gamble with Franz Ferdinand because they saw something happening. I think that Lawrence actually remortgaged his house to do it, but I remember going, because I was just on the fringes of the scene, blagging an invite to their 10th birthday party, which I thought was, like, the best thing ever. Still, when we talk about our anniversaries now, we talk about that as something that was quite meaningful, and they essentially relaunched the label with, like, Franz Ferdinand, The Kills. There were no Monkeys yet, but, like, you could tell that something really exciting was happening, and they were signing UK acts... I think other than flying saucer attack, they'd never really done it before. It was like one of the first Mm. times that they made direct signings, and that was great. And I think like Rough Trade had a real like renaissance around them as well. They put out like obviously like the Strokes and the first Arcade Fire record and some really cool things there, but those are labels that have been going for like well minimum 10 years and rough trade 800 years or whatever it's been <laughs> <laughs> I think that's the thing I think it's, it's a good but point because I think stuff.
3: I think when we decided to start the label it was kind of like at a convergence when those indeed older like labels yeah just changed their, their kind of signing policy and, and right. stumbled across all this incredible talent so it was kind of a great time to say yes let's do it because just at that point these the levy was about to break from the UK and London perspective so we were lucky to sort of go to all those shows and all those big Launches ourselves. I remember that dazed and confused party we went yeah. to with one of Franz Fernandes' other first London shows and Block Party and Sport when they were still unsigned. Yeah. And you know, like, yeah, we had just decided to start the label, and it was a really exciting time in London where all of these sort of post punky angular bands came out of nowhere, mm. and it was just like a tidal wave. So it was the perfect time to had, start like, something. Great, like, great clubs or well, stuff like Trash and then White Heat shortly afterwards. So well, you were
1: doing, I mean, a lot of yeah. club nights with a lot of people? Yeah, and we were doing,
3: anyway. t- yeah, we, we had loads of club nights, and yeah, it got it, that that's a good point as well because when when i started that club night it was about 2002 so i was about 17 or 18 and like I remember it was it, it was okay like we were booking we, I was able to pull in some favours and book some good stuff but then it was about two thousand 2004 2005 again when the label started it was like wait a second every month it was like you'd have Metronomy the Maccabees you know like Block Party multiple times and it was like every month there was an incredible band to book and it was sold out every month and that was when we realised from a promoting perspective as much as the label one that something was going on in London and that's where like we met Lever and stuff as well because I guess it started to have like international resonance a bit more as well.
1: Yeah, definitely. Of, you know. but
2: like, like what you're talking about is literally what drew me to um, London because I lived in Paris in Paris at the time. <clears throat> and I came into music like you know through the whole like French wave and like Daft Punk, Air, uh, Motorbass, all those bands, and that's really what got me into music. And so mm-hmm. I just kind of like lived in Paris, studied over there, probably had a career, you know, I don't know, <laughs> God knows what I would have done. <laughs> but so all that stuff was happening in London, and you know like I was you know watching MTV2 at home and like getting you know export copies of the enemy and everything. Just like just had to go to London, so I went to London thinking oh, I'm just going to go there for 6 months have fun go to gigs and come back and just god knows what happens but um <laughs> Four and Hal, years later how yeah, <laughs> actually is quite like yeah quite in indie funny story as well but i went to see the young Knights at the um, elbow rooms the uh, yeah, yeah. It doesn't exist anymore, anymore, any anymore. anymore. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah yeah and it so so like saw the band and thought oh my god that, that band is fucking incredible and i go to you guys
4: and came along we were DJing that one yeah, yeah, that one. yeah probably. Probably. Like, trying to like move the like back then, back then it was all vinyl so, <laughs> <laughs> and CDRs of bootlegs that you'd like yeah. downloaded mash up awfulness I yeah. was probably terrible I just it think
3: was, <laughs> but there was a point and like I think it kind of still permeates now it's like you know London is so blessed and I realised this in my travel like it's so culturally rich and artistically rich and there's always a great show on every night and there's so many great venues and you do realise that actually a lot of those scenes do come in and out, the tide isn't always, you know, in, you know. Um, well, that's what I'm now
4: though, I feel like I know this is jumping ahead and we're going to move <laughs> on to the future things as well. Yeah, but what I, quite like yeah, <laughs> what I quite like now is like, well, we came from a scene in that one, like right now, things are so eclectic, but I feel like our records are really like hitting people in a really soulful way and they're like excelling within their individual fields, and that's kind of healthier really I think well it
3: is but I do think there you know like again I think there's another or has been a scene of sorts it's not been as um, it hasn't yet hit the mainstream in the way that that sort of early to mid 2000s period did but I think it's on the fringes of doing so Mm. Uh, I guess
1: that kind of time was the last real mainstream indie kind of where it was like credible and successful did it feel like that at the time you had the London scene and you had all those fans coming and
2: London and New York actually but you had that indie scene going on but at the same time Myspace happened Mm. so everyone kind of connected online as well Mm. so there was kind of like this accessibility to like that kind of music and then people going to clubs and it was being played there as well so it kind of gelled really well Mm. I Um, think
4: it's it's funny at the time as well because that feeling of is something happening and stuff. I was really snobby towards it, first of all, because what happens is is when you have like... That's unlike you. When you have uh, something that's successful um, you normally have a legitimate underground and I'd come a lot more from the underground which then became popular because it was like all the math rock stuff like we were doing like like the tours with like foals and things like that in their previous band and like really DIY stuff so when I first heard um, The Libertines I was skeptical it's fair to say whereas toby was like in that scene oh, like, i was hook line was, and sinker so, <laughs> no, but this was like this was really healthy as a like dialogue to start something as well because it meant that our arguments were around like uh authenticity and intent and toby uh i think helped me access the feelings of that i'd had when i was like a kid hearing Britpop and I, I hadn't gone down I got into all that pretentious music because of Blur basically because <laughs> Graham Coxon started banging about Pavement and then from that I was like Husker and from that I was like oh what is this post-rock thing and so forth so it had been quite a pop way in through a gateway band but I would have never admitted that at the time <laughs> and Toby ha- kind of helped me realise like the importance of like some of those acts like you know you have an auteur like Bowie and he'll take something that's really underground and popularise it through great song and that really started to connect I think started to become more of a mantra of what we've always tried to do which is like try and find pioneers yes and we'll always look for those but also you know there are some acts that we signed that are just great songwriters and it doesn't matter if they're w- within like the field of what popular song is at that time or not, there's a universality to that a sort of sense of soulfulness that kind of hits you when you hear it. And that's
1: mm-hmm. more
4: valuable. Sorry, we splurged. We spl- <laughs> <We spledged.
1: laughs> yeah. um, so I guess at that point, when you first started, how were you finding bands? Like, so I guess, you know, obviously now you have a team, and A&R, and then it was, I guess, uh, a lot more kind of groups yes.
3: Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, it's like um, I think it kind of remains in, in much the same way. Now, in a strange way, it's like um, you never know where you're going to find an artist from or how it's going to happen. And that's kind of what's beautiful. Like there have been certain moments where we've gone, for example, to see other artists. You arrive early or late, and you see another band, and you're like, oh my god, that's the one. You know, you luck. You know, like
4: no one wants to say it, but luck falls into it definitely. Um, but I think also you start to attract more brilliant artists the more you work with and. Um, your reputation grows, and more people want to work with you. And um, in the yeah, early days, I think days, like
2: our artists are, you know, our biggest ambassadors as well. You know, we've had so many acts that we signed. You know, an artist. You know, I'll check out my friend and everything. So, is yeah, as you go, that kind of like. Yeah. Um, you, you, I think jo-
4: Johnny Flynn's been probably yeah, our best A and R. He, he uh, first played Marie Um We didn't sign her, but he first played this um, um, Anna Calvi. Um, he first played Try the River. Um, dry the River. Yeah. It's like it's amazing and like when we I remember that we signed the Mystery Cosmic Jets. Sheldrake as well. Oh Cosmo Shell was Johnny yeah. as well. And when we signed like the Mystery Jets, they like introduced us to like Jeremy Wormsley and like the Noisettes came through the mystery jets the as Kynical well. Chemical Bride. Bride, Larry yeah. in Love, like you find like a few friends and then and that goes goes through and like runs with it and then that's that's what's nice about the industry; it's really accessible. In, I mean, way I and think also. the other thing as
3: well, like, because there was stuff that predated Transgressive, like with you know, like the kind of Rock Feedback website and our mm-hmm. club nights and stuff. What was really helpful is that there were also existing relationships. So, like for example, a good friend of mine was uh, and is the the Strokes producer Gordon Raphael. He's an amazing producer, and now really you can interesting behinds producer, because that's his yeah, works on kind of the new Heinz records. Kind of. um, but like, what was amazing about Gordon is that he just was like voraciously recording bands all over the place: Berlin, New York, London, and. One day he told me about uh, this new sort of Russian singer who had just, you know, like she'd grown up in the Bronx and I should really check her out and her name was Regina and she was this amazing classically trained pianist and had this incredible vocal performance and he played me then like four songs in a row of what would end up becoming uh, part of her third album Soviet Kitsch and obviously that's Regina Spector and then the great thing about then this is when Transgressive for me personally and selfishly started making a lot of sense because to what I was saying earlier about finding a home for artists and being able to sort of help support what they were doing we were then able to release her music as the first album we put out on Transgressive back in 2005 and um, or maybe 2006 in the end I think it was, it was God knows this nice. is what happens when you get old <laughs> um, but like um, what, what was um, what was great was that um, you know that became her first like kind of proper UK distributed album and that was our first commercial album released as a lady and um, and even in that know, like we made something special like she'd had
4: um, three records out two that would just been like self-released and then Soviet Kitsch and we worked with her to pull together all of the story songs from those albums make like a UK only record, concept album thing which did really well like it's the first place that most people heard Us which I still think is one of the great songs we've mm. only got Chemo Limo on that record yeah. it's like
3: well that was the song that Gordon that's first like, played me when it, we first played me her music so to think pretty much one of the greatest songs ever I think is, but, the, like, but, the, <laughs> but that's the thing that's kind of beautiful about what we do is that like had, when I first heard that song and then we then put on a couple of shows from her when she first came to London and stuff um, someone told me that Chemo Limo and us those songs I heard I even attended the string session for us uh, when it was being recorded and had they like, known then that two three years later we'd be releasing it on Transgressive like, it would have blown my mind and I think that was like a wonderful realisation point where anything was possible and that uh, you know you always have to keep your eyes and ears open to where you can discover great great art effectively.
1: Yeah. Did you find, I guess, kind of um you know, if people are listening to this that are wanting to start labels or start putting things out, like how did you um like go about kind of those first steps when you are unknown to people or kind of not that known? Like how did you kind of go about Building a reputation, I guess, I think, or kind um, of like building that respect among peers.
3: I think building a team around artists is really important, and around the, the culture of a company. You know, like um, it, you can't really get that far by yourself. And you know, that was the reason why Tim and I enjoyed partnering up, really, because we are both sort of separately from each other to that point. Um, I think
2: also it's being like very, you know, honest with you know the artist you signed about what objectives you're trying to reach. There's no point, like, you know, promising a crazy moon to someone just to, you know, you know, sign someone and then it's like, oh, well, actually, we don't know how to do it. So, you know, you just kind of, like, build something together, yeah. reach those goals, smash them, yeah. and then that's how you start getting a reputation and get better as you get on. And, you know, 14 years later, hopefully, we've gotten better <laughs> yeah. at what we've Little, little uh,
4: achievable promises and yeah. keeping them. Is I think I
3: think yes and no. I mean I agree with that, but I also think as well one of the things that we've always done well is we've got excited. You know, like we're very excitable and we're very ambitious. And I think one of the things again that we were sort of united on when we started the company was like. We didn't want to be like indie by default. Like just because we're an independent label didn't mean that we were, you know, incapable of achieving a massive, massive thing. And I think that's the thing is that like independence is great from a sense of being able to move freely and, and get a lot done quickly because you haven't got loads of heads and departments sort of like kind of that you have to get on on side before you do stuff. But um, but really you should be able to move really fast to achieve incredible things. And you know, so I think ambition entwined with keeping promises definitely a like, Yeah, and I think yeah that's balance. definitely like, you
2: know, probably like um, uh, you know, young eyes getting nominated for a Mercury so soon after the creation of the label is a proof of that. So you know, there's mm. like three guys in like yeah. weird tweed costumes, which just like, okay, right. And 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 then you know, that kind of album plan we had with them was just incredible, and, and mm. we've achieved all everything that we kind of set as it grew. Um, so okay. yeah, so those
4: those yeah. little successes mean so much as well. Like we've had a bit of a nostalgic week because it's been both the 10th anniversary of uh, Antidotes, which is one of our first like big hits and then um, also Tudor Cinema Club did their first demo release this week so they've just released it um, digitally unfortunately, not on vinyl, sorry <laughs> uh, they just released it digitally um, uh, for the first time officially and um, one of the really cute things, especially on the Tudor one is they put up this little video that they made at the time um, and for them, making 500 copies of a CDR and giving that out to people, coming to a gig that they'd promoted themselves with their mates acting as like street team which they (laughs) just heard was a thing that happened and stuff like the achievement that that felt like Mm -hmm. at that time from having written and recorded some songs and given them to friends and having people turn up to a show in Dublin that's like that feels amazing if you've not done that that's like it's one of the best things it's still one of the best things the first singles from artists are always like amazing like you know when we did the, the first Boniface single I was like this is so exciting because it's a first and those things are magical and you know you grow and things get more serious and all sorts of things change but like those first little bits are are really achievable if you work hard with good people and focus on the important stuff and and that is is super special you know
1: it's a good feeling yeah I guess that's kind of a nice this is a nice week to be doing this chat if that is the anniversary because I guess Foles and Tudor are kind of two of the biggest yeah. successes on the label can you remember can you remember the first time that you set eyes upon these young horses <laughs> I,
3: suppose, I mean well Tim, Tim sort of went back with Yanis and Jack uh, who were in the band because Uh, Tim was in a sort of like band that I saw a few times before they disbanded called Ships Are Going Down Um, and they used to tour with the MM Fitzgerald which was Yanis and Jack's sort of very mathy hardcore band Um, and they used to play sort of like places in like predominantly Oxford and do little kind of DIY tours up and down the country Um, and basically Tim sort of kind of kept in touch with them and Yanis sort of like one day sent a demo to Transgressive for us to check out and Tim had heard it I think it was delivered at your house at the time wasn't it and I just remember he came in just raving about it and wanted a kind of second set of ears. At which point, like, yeah, we just sort of put it on the office. It was immediately evident what what quality it was and how unique that band was. And I think we, yeah, we we did indeed offer them, I think, a publishing and record label deal at the end of that phone call when Tim called them back. So that's a really rare story of like where you hear something that's eminently incredible well, I mean, it's from it's the that first. So it's
4: like sometimes this is where friends are really helpful because we do it now as well. It's like sometimes you need the encouragement like I'd listen to it at home and I knew it was really special um but I was also like friends with them and so mm-hmm. I, it sometimes clouds your your judgment a little bit so having someone that hadn't met them who whose opinion I like really really trusted being like this is really incredible is like gives you that validation and that first demo is amazing it has like
3: French open hammer balloons plateau, balloons sort yeah of one one like
4: maybe one more
3: maybe. um yeah I mean that was the thing like the first two singles were on there and then the first like proper single from the Antidotes was on there and you know it was just like really abundantly clear what what that band could be and Mm. then I think I think um, yeah like I was the only round around for some reason for their next London show which was at um which venue was that? It was at uh, Nambuka? Nambuka yeah. yeah, Nambuka. yeah, you yeah, yeah. Cool yeah, as well. Yeah, yeah, it was yeah. so uh, great. Yeah, uh, <laughs> so yeah, it was just like, but Nambuka is still a good venue. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. no, but like at the time, so it's funny, like, yeah. yeah. But it was like them and Hadouken and. Wow. Um, oh, yeah. A what cum- a bell. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Quite. And, um, and it was interesting because, like, everyone was there to see Hadouken, and this often happens in the music industry, a lot of people go and check out, like, the buzz band or whatever, and so Hadouken were on before Foles, and then everyone pretty much from the music industry that I knew was there left, and we stayed, and I remember one uh, person who went on to manage Hadouken said, why are you still hanging around? And I was like, oh, no reason, I thought I'd just have a drink, um, <laughs> and then sure enough, Foles came on, um, and... It was great because like they were just doing something completely different like even though they had guitars in their, their hands like they were doing it very differently to every other artist and we knew from that point that um, well then then therein started like a kind of hilarious two to three month uh like courting period uh, yeah. where like they basically <laughs> it kind invaded of
2: invaded the office yeah yeah they sort of
3: <laughs> moved into our office uh they sort of treated it as a makeshift rehearsal room i'm
2: really surprised we didn't get evicted i mean yeah. I, I know okay, <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> it was like a horrible
3: office with, like the office Office was the squat at the time. It
4: was and, disgusting, um, and they were in. We had a fake wall between where we were working and where they were rehearsing, they rehearsed all day and it was amazing because we could hear everything being written so there'd be moments where we'd like run across we'd be like this, this hasn't got an album, this is incredible <laughs> and there'd be other moments where it's like, for Christ's sake, another drum solo <laughs> it was just like <laughs> <a lot> <laughs> crying like um, and it was disruptive like which was, I'm sure, the point and I remember one of the funniest moments of that period was we would go in and they'd suddenly just start playing the set and we were like, oh, why are you rehearsing, you've got a gig coming up and they're like, no, we've got a showcase for Mute and we were like, <laughs> Really? <laughs> You'll do Okay, cool! Um, but they obviously did the right thing and signed with us in the end, which was lovely. Um, and then anyway, in the same office, the other one was a very different story with Two Door, where we'd already had some success with Foles, and I guess we were kind of like a buzzy label at the time, and the management, um, who are like amazing managers, came in, um, and they were just like, we really like what you've done historically, you should have a listen to this, and um, they played us, uh, again, like this, thing that has just been released and it has three of the songs that ended up being on the debut record and they're just like anthems and we like hammered them in the office and then we went to see them and they weren't actually that great live it was quite different from um from foals but um who were always amazing live Um, but you could hear like the songs were like incredible and they played remember on that first gig they played that song either Up It's Good For You, which was on the first record, which was never a single, but for me that song always like, just hit, like hits, like really hard and you you hear that kind of soulful thing and it's, you can't put, put a pin on it, but it's special and magical and you're like this is someone that's going to write songs that are going to change lives and then years later we're like at Glastonbury or Reading watching tons of people weeping their eyes out for those songs because they're meaningful
3: it's it's so surreal i mean like we often talk about like kind of those crowning moments and it is like when you see all of the thousands of people at those huge shows for particularly those two bands you see what their catalogue of songs has meant because they've been around for a while now you know like two doors 10 years folds is over 10 years you know and you look at those kind of reactions and the amazing music they put out and how they only seem to kind of yeah get bigger it's kind of surreal really it's amazing
2: Yeah. it's really interesting because, like you see like you know earlier fans who are you know now 10 to 15 years older but also kids are just like getting into it now and getting into all the, you know those bands back catalogue and that's just yeah.
4: incredible so, yeah, that's like yeah like Tudor like some of those yeah. kids like when they put this song up, thing up now they were like what were you doing 10 years ago and those people were like I was in kindergarten <laughs>
1: yeah, yeah. yeah. What?
3: I think, I, think, I think they were surprised by that response I think they were expecting people just to be like oh yeah I was just leaving uni or whatever yeah. and like, and it wasn't like that at all they've realised they've got this whole new audience that have just discovered yeah. them so it's quite funny and that that's is- the view of uh, streaming yeah i yeah. <laughs> <laughs> sort of
4: waiting for that oh, i it's hear nuts, i <laughs> hear that craig from flying vinyl has a
3: spotify What? i just hear as long yeah. as he buys everything he hears on dsp on vinyl that's fine everything <laughs> He's he probably has
2: a special app that plays the vinyl
1: yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm going to go white say, of London.
4: <laughs> yeah. Um I'm going to grab another beer. Is
3: anyone I I, one? I I apologize if I have to leave in the next 5 minutes. Okay, I'm I'll afraid. wait for the beer um, break. Which is that's rings Toby. Have you've okay, got any questions yeah. for Toby
1: specifically
3: uh, where to get the nice shirt. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or a clean shirt where did you get your clothes? it's not that clean actually don't look
1: too clean <laughs> <laughs> um i don't know not specifically but i guess like if we just what you were saying though because obviously we probably should you know talk about the fact that now in the time that you've been running this label obviously releasing things is an incredibly different world now to how it was when you started yeah. um how have you adapted um has it been tricky
3: God, I mean, the music industry is always tricky. Um, I think one thing we talk about quite a lot amongst the three of us particularly is, um, you know... The last sort of like three years have probably seen it get easier than when we started. Um, and what I mean by that is that, you know, we started in 2004 and that was just, unbeknownst to us at the time, that was like kind of pre-YouTube, that was certainly before things like Spotify, Apple Music, obviously iTunes formed sort of like shortly after the label started. Yeah, but also, it was you know,
2: also the worst time, you know, for traditional music sales. And Well, this is it, everything, so that, everything was know, crashing. Was like everything yeah. was crashing and, you know, you didn't have all those... Um, uh, legal streaming services or download services this and it was all time
4: well like all Napster yeah so piracy was at an all-time high one of the things I don't want to overstate uh, our role in this but I think a big part of what we did with Transgressive because we started putting out more popular acts and we started putting them out on vinyl because we loved about it and that was an underground thing like Seven Inches at the time were things that you bought shows from underground bands and um, and they were put out through like micro labels that were really keen to release their friends music um, and they were things that you could get in like rough trade which was a lot smaller as a shop um, physically and um, a few other indie record shops mm. like I used to get them in Andes in Essex and Pure like, Groove like pure doesn't groove. exist anymore like they, it was quite a niche thing and when we started doing like Acts that started troubling the charts, and we started pressing more and more of them. That's part of why your HMVs and things like that started stocking them again. So that vinyl resurgence hadn't started yet. The vinyl was like still being seen as a dead format. and it was only when people realised that people found 7 inches more collectible than CD singles that I yeah. started to really bounce back and, and then much.
3: that then transformed into the album mm-hmm. format where like kind of really it's around 2010 2011 when like that was the real start we started seeing vinyl album sales really pick up but it, it's hilarious with our distributor at the time when we started the label one of our first, we were
4: we were quite obnoxious at the time and we <laughs> not were much has changed or like <laughs> dogged and originally one of our like, early mantras was like we'll release music digitally because we believe it accessibility, all that sort of stuff, definitely. Um, and, we were, and we were the first to do that as well as like a small label. And, um, and we'll do it on vinyl. and we'll never do CDs. And it took us a lot of, it was actually really like m- managers who really wanted to chart and um, marketed and distributors at the time, which is like, you have to start doing CDs. And that's what kind of pushed us into that mm-hmm. format because we didn't want to mm-hmm. be arch about it. But our, our yeah. love has always been like accessibility so that people can get it. Wherever, however they and want to hear it. Having a one wonderful product that feels really special for people that actually care about that. But but yeah, So the market's
3: kind of got closer, I think, to what our vision was. Mm, I think starting it back then was like you know we, we certainly for the vinyl sales and then also like some of those initial formats it wasn't a problem. But as the industry started losing confidence and as the scene as it did eventually die uh, mm. that we were a part of partially, you mm. know, like we were lucky enough, unlike a few others at the time, just to sort of like make that leap because. Is the labels always been diverse, you know. So even though we were very much plugged into the London and British guitar scene, like we also had things like Regina Spectre and then we were sort of like kind of working with artists like Foles who were moving on. We also had some sort of artists that for want of a better phrase of the scene they were part of you know they were part of the more folkier end of the spectrum and you know so we had like enough but diversity also, like, within we what rele- we were doing you know,
2: releasing kind of you know The Shins and Nine and Nine and getting all those American bands you know on, uh, from, from South Clock and stuff that
3: was also like a massive step. yeah so we we were able to kind of escape a lot of that um, that kind of like side of things and then I guess as the industry changed like you know we changed with it you know again going back to the early point we're lucky to be small enough to sort of Mm. kind of contort and move with the times we're not sort of kind of caught up with like having to get loads of approvals before we change our business model
1: yeah do you think that um, launching a new band or kind of like trying to make an impact with a really new artist is a different thing now to you know those kind of like first singles that
3: you put out. Like how I think, I think, I think it's definitely tra- more challenging for launching a new band, for example, like a new British guitar band in the current climate. Um, I think because when you've got a scene, you can just sort of like kind of roll with that energy mm-hmm. and that commotion that happens. But that said, I do believe quality wins out all the time. You know, if you're great, then people will recognise it, whether that's in the live arena initially or a song that eventually connects.
0: I think I think
4: volume is a big challenge though as well. It's like so much music is released now because it's cheap it's kind of in a sense i love it because it's the punk ideal of anyone can do it and it can be available really easily but in a sense it's really difficult to uh build a career for the really special people because there's so much noise and even in terms of repeat listens and stuff as well like people now will listen to like like it seems to me this year there have been four or five great albums released almost every week um yeah, that's a lot like, And I mean like really <laughs> Records worth listening to And mm. what happens is People listen to them once We go, like Yeah, I've listened to that record That's great mm. And then move on to next week's record Whereas before you'd like Hammer it again and again and again I think what,
2: that's what we're trying yeah. to do as well And really push people You know, to listen to albums Because mm. we're in a very singles-driven And playlist-driven culture And feel that, you know there, there is too much noise For people to actually focus on On a proper album And spend time with it And it's um,
4: But the, pro- the problem yeah. is Is you can have like If you have Twenty thousand people listen to a whole album on Spotify. It's not enough money to make another album, and that's a lot, lot of people. Whereas if you had like historically five thousand sales, mm. then probably is enough to make another album. And these things are like, this is a shifting, growing pain that we're going through as an industry. I think which is why you're it's getting a shift, more. but it's
2: also like, an opportunity because you know um, with streaming, those records are going to exist in people's like libraries mm. for years. And, you know, they'll keep listening to albums and so you've got a longer longer
1: life. Yeah, like a lot more um, people discovering things that wouldn't necessarily be, you know, whereas, I guess, if you weren't tapped into the kind of cool mid-naughties London scene, you Mm. might not have found those early bands that... Mm. Yeah. uh, You know, like I know that like I found bands you know when the internet wasn't a thing you know when it was just like basic proto internet then then God we sound really hello up. I uh,
3: yeah. it's so hard so to not sound old I know isn't it? but like, it's this true though when it was just, you
1: know like a combination of <laughs> MySpace yeah oh my you know, my yeah waiting for the dial up yeah waiting for the dial up tone but like a combination of you know MySpace and um, fan forums mm. and things like that and that was how you found music. Um, Or, you know, you went and saw the sport bands and you kind of dug it in through music press and things like that. Whereas, so like you had to have an entry point um, into that kind of little cool bubble to kind of then... Find the little avenues around it, whereas well, that made I think you now. Stick to it more because now like, oh
2: yeah, because it's so you. available that you listen to it. And I ask, to Tim's point, it's like, yep, heard that.
1: Yeah, uh, <laughs> I think music's less tribal now, mm. which mm-hmm. is maybe.
4: I think that can a be, be a good thing, thing as well. Yeah, yeah. I think I, it is good and bad. But also, when I go and see live music and it's the band that has connected, it feels like even like, you know, you go to like a Brian Avon show and you see loads of people together losing their show, around that's
3: it's still that feels the same to me mm-hmm. it feels yeah yeah the passion that's engendered is still there it's just that certain artists you know engender it more than others i think that's always been the case i think um i think maybe where the challenge is and maybe this is an exciting creative challenge for artists is you've got to write hits and you've got to make amazing albums you've got to do both you can't just like just to tim's point like do a really good record in some instances obviously you can but i do think there's always been that pressure with commerce and the creativity like whether it's trying to get on a radio playlist or whether it's trying to get on television you've always got to have bangers alongside the deeper cuts and that's the beauty of the of the industry is trying to find that that cross between appealing to as many people as possible in certain instances as well as not you know like kind of losing your integrity and ideally you know the best artists do both you know
1: yeah um, do you think that those kind of um i mean i guess radio is still is, is a big one for you guys but I mean like now I mean obviously the, mu- the music press has gone through a weird couple of months. It certainly <laughs> yeah. has.
4: It certainly
1: has. <laughs> Why, what's happened? Oh it's well, just like nothing nothing much like a couple <laughs> of blogs started I That's think. Cool. Um, but yeah so obviously the enemy shut down um, which is a huge thing but like I guess um, do those things do you do you worry so much about getting that kind of coverage now as a label? Mm. Do you think the bands need it as much? Is it as integral to kind think, of I think I think so, like like starting always, things? We always we
2: always go for every literal avenue, literally, because you know we're not going to be like oh this band's going to do well on radio so we can ignore DSPs. You know we really mm. go for every single channel to you know push a band forward. But some outlets are going to catch up on uh, on the band earlier or later than others, like I remember Tudor Cinema Club, like you oh, yeah. know, radio took ages to catch and the band was just, like playing live and their fans were growing, 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 growing and so all of a sudden after what, five singles we finally actually hit it at radio so it's it's always, you know, um, a, a work
4: But I, I feel like narrative, journalistic narrative is really important because oh. often that contextualisation and stuff helps you get the artists as people and, brings you closer to that and I, st- I still think it has a, v- a value as well, it's like often I'll read stuff in the music press that talks about artists that may be been around for a while talking about their breadth of career so far and there'll mm-hmm. be albums that I've forgotten about and not checked out and I guess with everyone reissuing stuff on vinyl and everyone listening to Spotify and stuff now, the accessibility to hear some of these things is is far better, it's like I really love um, uh, Neil Young and he had one album which he hated that he purposefully kept out of print for years, and I really had to hear this album. So I ended up spending quite a lot of money <laughs> on this record to, for like first vinyl pressing years ago. and Now it's up on Apple and it's been reissued on vinyl and Was that it? Yeah, it's <laughs> fucking amazing. It's the middle uh, or maybe the last one in the ditch. The ditch trilogy, time fades away, and he wrote it. It's a really tough record because. Um, he wrote it all about his friend who uh, died of uh, heroin overdose. the guy in the the needle and the damaged arm, which is the song that everyone knows. And he was in the band, and it was really like really hit him. And he went out to do this massive tour at stadiums in support of. Um, in support of Harvest, and instead of playing Harvest, he played these eight new songs that were really fucking sad dirges that um, classic, no Absolutely one knew. Classic. Like no <laughs> one knew, and he literally got booed off stage with a like, really emotive. And he recorded these, and it's quite a shoddy recording, but it's really soulful recording, and mm. that's what the album is. <laughs> it's it's amazing it's like heartbreaking you can listen to it on the way home thanks to the internet so these things are good I think and, and like he'll be making an income of that where when I bought it secondhand on vinyl he wouldn't have got anything so yeah. it's a
3: plus I do think the storytelling element is crucial you know understanding an artist's objectives and their place in the world and even just them asking questions I think that that as a, a kind of accompaniment to, to the art they're making is, is essential I think whatever form it will take from a kind of commercial perspective for the music press or how that'll be weighted as it used to be between you know the hundreds of thousands of grubby fingered sort of <laughs> copies that used to get shifted obviously it's totally different now but but I think that narrative and that rhetoric is crucial to understanding people
1: yeah also I guess you could argue that even if people don't need it find music now because they're just getting fed playlists and you can just find everything yourself they're yeah. so, like actually to cut you know what you were saying before about there being so much noise mm. like to cut through that and mm. have some some kind of like route through rather Any than it just being yeah like do you think these kind of tastemakers is that still a thing yeah, 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 yeah absolutely so. why not and
4: I think I mean it is the essence of flying vinyl as well isn't it yeah. so you're essentially being a filter shown like five new bands that you may not have heard. That's what Transgressive is. Like mm.
3: Transgressive is exactly that. It's like it's effectively several friends, you know, kind of like quite arrogantly shouting about <laughs> artists that they think are better than others, <laughs> um, you know. And that's the beauty of it, you know. Whether that's a pub conversation or you know a chat in a queue at a gig before you go in, you know, that's how you discover stuff. And you know, hopefully, if we can facilitate that process, that's that's a joy, really. Excellent. I've got to go to a gig with that in mind. <laughs> <laughs>
1: <laughs> anyway, so I reckon. Um, well, I mean, I think a nice point to kind of bring it more into the present. So day. I am distracted
4: by what this is. I might get a glass. Do you want to get a glass? Do you want
1: a glass? <laughs> um, no, I've kind of like scraped most of it okay, off. Okay,
4: right, well, if you've done that, I'm going to roll with that. <laughs> yeah,
1: you sure? You can get a glass yeah. if you want. Don't judge it. No,
4: it's fine. I'm going to wipe it. Cool.
1: I mean, now sorry. I'm worried. Is it, no, why is it?
4: I think it's probably just another beer that's spilt on it and then congealed. Mm. You know,
2: Double beer.
1: <laughs> <laughs> it's it's, not. You guys have it's a rollover. Tomorrow, yeah, sorry. I'll let you know. I'll keep you updated sorry. on the bowel movements. <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> anyway, um, so yeah, I think um, a nice way to kind of bring this into a more present day conversation is obviously you did uh, a takeover for Flying Vinyl last year last April I think yeah. um, which was so you had was it Marika Glenavon Gengar
2: Hippocampus Let's see Grandma let Grandma yes of course yeah
1: yeah um, which I would assume was quite a fun thing to curate amazing
4: yeah it was such a joy um, so we um, Craig got in touch with Flying Vinyl yonks ago like a long long while ago and uh Speaking to him, we had a long conversation. Like he and I had a long phone conversation because um, the intent of what he was trying to do was always like pretty amazing. I like I thought I was really wanted to buy into it, but to start with like some of the like structural stuff was kind of like exactly as we were when we started Transgressive. Like well-meaning, don't know how to go about different things, and so like for us in terms of the relationships we had with some of our artists, we were like I was like I don't think we can do this for these reasons. Um, he was like yeah here you we're working on it it's totally our intent to nail all this stuff and so did and then came back and was like oh these things are sorted we are brilliant then this is amazing (laughs) um had a really exciting meeting and um i was like we've wanted to get involved with this for a long while we'd love to do like a takeover thing and um he was like oh most labels no but yours is really good roster so let's do something and That was super fun, and we've done. I think since the taker as well. I think we've had a seven inch in almost every month following, or every month. I think maybe (laughs) I don't know. It's been great. Like we put out some amazing records together, and it's such a nice approach to doing it because you know it's going to people that are really passionate about music and open eared, and feel like uh, flying vinyls taking some really good risks on stuff as well. Like I guess now everyone's really excited about about uh, Let's See Grandma. We were mm. always excited about Tudor Cinema Club. <laughs> 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 I was very excited about Let's See Grandma, um, but at the time that we were doing it and stuff as well, it was quite a risk, I think, for some of the previous records that come out and a bit different. And we put out like a, we made a special single version for, we thought of it like a jukebox final, and so we mm. made like a single version of a seven-minute song of the album just for the seven-inch, which is really cool. Nice. And on the B side, we had a Wolf Alice remix, which is one of my favorite things we've done, because who we all love Um, we think people have a preconception about what they're like as a band or what kind of music they do and that remix sounds like vintage AFX Twin it's like (laughs) not what you would expect and and so that was like a double win and you had like bringing out like a really different side of one act and combining it with another one and then giving that to a really open-minded audience
2: that, and I think that when you talk about you know the challenges of releasing music today and all that noise and people having short attention spans and you know scenes being less important than they were you know at least in you know that 2004 mm. era that's exactly what it does so it, it is a scene you know so you've got the creation aspect um, the scene aspect that's here when people really you know pay attention and to like get onto new bands which is a yeah.
4: incredible
2: incredible reading. So. And we did
4: some like great, we, the, the Gengar live EP as well, that was really fun because we were like, the band hadn't put anything out that year and, and we had, it's no secret that it was a really difficult second album It took its time and they'd done mm-hmm. a tour in between and so we did a live recording of that tour and we did like a 33 and a 3rd 4 track proper <laughs> EP of, of like great live songs and really good recordings as as a like, in-between release that meant a lot, I think. It was almost, yeah. like, a substantial thing and felt, felt really good. And we had, like, Hippocampus, who I think are, like, you know, one of the, like, underground gems that do really well on the label. They were just too brilliant. like a classic double-A side, like, in the early days. Mm-hmm. Um, and Marika Hatman's was amazing. So I did all these stickers, and that was really cool as well because, like, Marika, um, her first album was quite... Um, I actually thought it was quite electronic, but everyone else thought it was really folky. <laughs> and um, her, second, about her second <laughs> album was... Uh second album was a uh, really like garagey record with Bias. the mood and bangers and stuff and so doing it as like a punk seven inch was mm. fucking hilarious and like <laughs> that was really fun and which one haven't we spoken about? No
2: we did, so we had an always one after that's Oh yeah, incredible. after the always that's one Yeah um, and then on We just did a bonnie face, second single, we did uh, we did. Uh,
4: yeah. And on Paradise fans. as well we've done some like first things our little, our, our seven inch imprint and stuff mm. as well yeah. we were like actually if there's a passion on the flying vinyl so and you're into these acts as much as us. So we do like the Bad News Club one, which I love. Yeah. it's really special.
1: I guess the ones that were in that box set were kind of the more classic indie side of the things that you've been mm. putting out recently.
2: Yeah,
1: but yeah, they were like quite current. Like they were
2: pretty representative were a of our time. roster at the time, wasn't yeah. it? So it's, um... But then
1: also, you know, more recently you've signed Sophie. who's obviously yeah. You know, ex kind of PC music stuff. And then I guess like even Boniface and something like that is a bit less yeah. kind of, you know, it's less guitar-y. Well, we've not
4: talked to our, our biggest act is, we haven't mentioned, which In is, is Flume, yeah. which is like, you know, globally as well. It's like, you know, he's bigger than Foles and it's like amazing, like, you know, yeah. really incredible. But for him, like, we spend a lot of time thinking about vinyl for him as well because he really cares about it. And uh, this guy called Jonathan's father, who's like an amazing fine artist, does all the graphics and stuff. So they're like amazing high-end things. But for him, it's more of a 12-inch format. It's like, we do 12-inch EPs, double vinyl albums, different, like, super large, everything sounding really loud. Like, the mastering engineer that does it is this guy called Matt Colton. He does quite a few of our records, and he's just a genius. At, like, his records sound amazing. So we, like, we put in that care and attention, but that doesn't really work on a 7-inch format. And I think, oh, Cosmo is the other one that we've done recently so we did Cosmo Sheldrake on Flying Vinyl I knew that was one more <laughs> it's great but, yes. um, yeah so I mean it's kind yeah. of like playing to the format and I, I also get the sense that I might be wrong maybe you can tell us but I feel like the Flying Vinyl audience is like half kind of people that used to go to loads of gigs and were really impassioned by these things and it's like an easy way for them to kind of mm. stay on top of like i think it's a, young, like,
1: and, it's a lot young like it's people's introduction half, to stuff you know
4: half gateway bands so we've been yeah, thinking completely. about as like what are our gateway bands like yeah. this is you know we want it to be a thing where you know i think if you've if you've listened to that gengar uh live album like you should like you should buy the new album. It's like, I'm not saying as a marketing thing. I mean, it's like, if I heard that, I'd be like, <laughs> fucking hell, this guy, these guys have two albums. I'm going to yeah. go and buy them or get a ticket or, you know, yeah. like, you know, engage with a band that can really mean something to you. And that's,
1: Do you think kind of um, going back, you know, talking about Flume and people like that, um, who I think, you know, if he'd have been on your roster at the start of the label, it would have been more surprising and I think now it maybe isn't like do you think that your um, do you think that your kind of A&Ring has changed over the years or the label kind of ethos has developed or changed in any way
2: I don't think so like we've always tried to like sign like you know brilliant acts regardless of the genre and I think that you know at the beginning of the label it was very kind of like uh, UK indie
4: uh, But then although, although like I, w- I was kind of looking back we always signed oddities so yeah, like yeah, yeah, yeah. you know one of our first signings was Jeremy Warmsley, who I think is like mm. really ahead of his time um, and someone has a Jeremy Warmsley <laughs> tattoo in the room <laughs> so um, really ahead of his time when you look at how like James Blake has done so well from taking like songwriting and applying that to like a digital aesthetic that's like That's what Jeremy was doing, and
1: Jeremy Wormsley, who wrote the theme tune to the Picture (laughs) House, he did.
4: Yeah, that was a strange. He's done. He's done some really good soundtrack stuff, and then obviously he and his wife did Summer Camp Later, which had some success. And he's like, he's you know a really, really talented guy all round. But like, that was odd at the time and we did like the out. Oh, young Knives, young knives yeah. were, yeah, you know, everyone was trying to be like really fucking cool and the Young Knives came out dressed as like mm. the Young Farmers Association and um, if people thought they were a joke, people thought the Mystery Jets were a joke when we signed them, like honestly I remember going into like one label, like before, when I was trying to help them out, and they said some really offensive things about Mr. Yeah, just like they thought we'd just like picked up a bunch of urchins off the street and they
1: were like, These songs, are- yeah. which was kind <laughs> of slightly true <laughs> <laughs> so they could really write some
2: pop, uh, yeah, yeah, exactly.
4: And they're like one of the best and most important bands we've worked with. and um, you know, we've
2: never tried to sign the right thing no. for, the, you know, for the times, ever. That's ever, never been our no, thing, so we just mean, like, try
4: and sign what excites us. And it's a shame Toby's it. not here, because he's hit this point in his career where he's starting to be a bit less PR as well, so he would have had some great stories about the many times we turned down Razorlight, which I think are <laughs>
0: always,
4: <laughs> always humorous.
1: What <laughs> um, do you think? Um, because, obviously, I mean, especially kind of at the moment, but then historically as well, it's like a very broad roster in terms of genre, yeah. uh, do you think that there's something that unites, like what do you think that all of the artists that you sign have that kind Genius. of unites them if it's not? Mm.
4: Genius. It's the easiest thing. And that's like, it's an early lesson, we, you know, you sign the best thing in its field and it's hard, you have to... If you do what loads of great labels have done historically and they sign one thing and then they sign six things that sound like it and hope that it'll come through, which is a common tactic, you, you're hot for like a moment and then it dies away if you sign individual geniuses and you help support their creative vision it's harder, you have to come up with a totally different marketing plan each time you have to work outside of your comfort zone, you have to learn about different musics, and di- uh, musics, musical <laughs> styles and producers and but
2: that's exactly what keeps it exciting it's totally, just, like, bored afterwards. I mean
4: we've got like it's so great that we have like songway blues on the same label as Johnny Flynn on the same label as Sophie it's like, it's exciting, mm-hmm. it's like different
2: you know it's, and know. All, all the artists we work with you know regardless of the genre of music they're doing like absolutely respect each other as well so there's mm-hmm. you know that's kind of like sense of family there
1: yeah mm-hmm. um, do you think uh, so if people were wanting to, to do this for themselves mm-hmm. um, how do you like? how did you kind of keep it afloat at the start and like what are the kind of do you have any tips
4: um Patience. Everything takes a really long time. Um,
1: How long did it take until you were kind of um, financially stable as a label?
4: So it was a bit different. So most labels go bankrupt at some point. (laughs) Like (laughs) most of the great ones have, and we touch wood. (laughs) (laughs) (laughs)
1: Happened?
2: Yeah. So
4: So, you know, um, our most stressful times weren't the start. Like because when you have when you have nothing to lose you have it's easy so um, we started um, with five hundred pound from my student loan five hundred pound that I borrowed off my dad and we pressed some records and we knew that if we sold it out we could do another one so that was the principle we did that for the first five records. Um, and then by which time we'd got enough of a buzz to be able to do like a bigger marketing distribution deal, which we did, and lasted like three years, and that gave us cash flow, um, mm. and. That kind of thing is still it's achievable. Just like, yeah, but if always you think, be like, like really
2: realistic about what you're trying to achieve, and not you know go all out on a first single mm-hmm. thinking, "Right, I'm going to smash it," and then you realise that it, you can't really go on because you've gone too far. So mm-hmm. you're yeah, gonna like, sort of like set you know um, achievable objectives, smash them, and then go higher. Do
4: it, if, do as yeah, a hobby really well, yeah. and then you can turn your hobby into your job, and Definitely. that's that's kind of what we did, and it coincided nicely that. Um, Uh, we managed to take a really modest salary just on me leaving uni and Toby moving into London and then we expanded that and we were on the same for a long while and then there were were periods like we had when we came out of that first deal uh, that we'd done with Warner's after three years, we were in a really bad way and nearly went under. Then that was the time when we were like raising personal debt with our bank and stuff. And that's that's when it got scarier because mm. it's like r- real. <laughs> like you, you know, it's not like oh we've lost five hundred quid. It's like oh shit, this could be quite serious. But thankfully, we have amazing taste in music and all work really hard. So <laughs> we traded our way out of it. <laughs> and now it's like we <laughs> we um. <laughs> not so yeah and so like we we nailed it
1: (laughs) yeah do you ever get um because so much of making this work and do i mean i guess anything in the industry but especially this um is just relying on your own gut instincts and taste Mm. Mm -hmm. um how do you kind of steer through the wobbles and just keep doing that's
4: the that's the that's what you need it's like i don't want to use the expression balls because it's terrible but it's like you have to have conviction in your toes
2: it it also really depends on the people you're working with because like you know when if you're working with like you know we've been working together for you know like 14 years now and i think that once you have that kind of support around you you can Mm -hmm. all do it together and it's kind of like right we're just going to keep our head down and, and work and do it and so those wobbles are more easily manageable you know
4: everyone has like the other thing is, is like you always struggle with your projects that end up being our biggest like you can't um, the success of a project is almost as random as the luck of finding it so um you never know where that hit's going to come from, so you might as well be working on something that you're really passionate about. So, for example, the Noisettes, which actually when we were in that wobble, that was what saved the label. That that second Noisettes album was a proper hit. We had a number two single, uh, the album's platinum. It's like we did so many syncs, It was like the, we published it, and it was on the first album, That was a proper hit, yeah, yeah, and that that like came through. When we first signed them, they were uh, we signed to publishing. Their record label was about to drop them. Um, they had record, tried to record their first album three times and were told that they didn't have a record. And so and they weren't being given any more budget. So we hunkered down with them, went through all of the different recordings they'd done, compiled this record, which is still a fucking great garage rock <laughs> album. It's really, really good songs on it, And we flew out to America and pitched it to their American label as like this is something you can release and they went for it and then from that they kind of passed go and then afterwards they would I think they were dropped and then re-signed by the same label through some like weird quirk of however those things happen and they got a really uh, amazing manager on board and made this pop album and it became like at the time huge and um on paper it didn't look good for the first three years <laughs> <laughs> and we were like there working it through with them because we love them as people and we love their music and and that's uh that's the thing even like you know two door so big now like huge globally but the first you know we couldn't get arrested with that band for the first like 12 like, months really yeah it's like, so like
2: five singles yeah. really bring it. I, yeah radio and press was tough as well they to had... begin with and it's just through hard work mm. and lots of shows and they had two
4: it, sold out yeah. Shepherds Bushes before they got a radio yeah. C-list and they, ha- and they had um, they had like um No one was writing about them, they were like perennially like not seen as a cool thing. And we were just like, Oh these kids are into these huge songs and they're great Um, Mm -hmm.
2: I think that's slowly happening with hippocampus as well, Mm -hmm. you know, because it took a long time for people to start, you know, taking interest in the band and stuff. It just you know, the last time they came around they played to Coco and it was just like it's it's like it's happening in America, it's huge and it's getting huge here as well. But
4: you know, media-wise we haven't, I don't think anyone in the UK I don't think we've even had the last album reviewed by any of the major music press in the UK and yet, it's one of our biggest streaming bands they sell out Coco they're
1: the ones that people kind of um, retrospectively like start you'll get loads of feature offers Mm -hmm. from people that Mm -hmm. realise they've completely bypassed this thing that gets really (laughs) love. well I mean (laughs) that's what happened with like Circle Waves at the start Two Door but even like
4: like producer choice like everyone is going like BJ Burton who produced their last album with them like now like um, uh, Japanese uh, House has just Mm. done done her album with him Mm. Um, he's done all the stuff with um, Bon Iver and stuff it's become like a real like hipster cool producer and they like they did it because they liked his sound and stuff and like they had a connection with Low, who are an amazing band and like all these kind of things like happen naturally and now people are kind of coming around to it so I kind of feel like oh. sometimes you have to just go the long road Keep, and yeah, it's really yeah. Sp- but I mean that's, really that's the kind of
1: you know that's the beauty of I guess being at this size of label is that you know, if you're on a major, that, that just very rarely happens now, it seems, on yeah. a major. Like, you know, even bands that have become really big, you kind of thing, like if they were signed now, like, they'd be screwed. Like, yeah. would, you know, would the Mappies have been allowed to have got to a point where on their fourth album they had a number one yeah. if their first album had done as well as colour it in on, like, a, Especially like... Especially not
4: if I knew they were going to split up at that point.
1: Exactly, <laughs> those bastards. Oh, yeah. Heartbreak. <laughs> <laughs> those guys,
4: like, you should do an interview with the yellow guys, like Felix yeah, and Willow. Like, that's, that's like, they're, they're good people who are yeah, doing Yeah, we did
1: a show with, yeah. Oh, not yeah. after. <laughs> uh, <laughs> just just sharing, uh, <laughs> the, sharing the vibes. <laughs> um, cool. I guess that's kind of... Um, most of the things, but I guess you know, um like moving forwards now that you are approaching 15 years, like how do you see it? Like, moving forwards, do you still have like things that you want to achieve? Like, what are those things?
2: <laughs> I mean, like for like immediate for like the fifteenth. I think we're gonna plan. We're gonna do go a big on our fifteenth anniversary. Yes. So yeah, we're just, like quite excited about plans for that. So we had like quite a big celebration for our tenth, and we are get bigger that. for the fifteenth. <laughs> so yeah, we're starting to get our head. I feel around like we're that. just getting started as a label. Yeah. Honestly,
4: like we've. Um, I'm really proud of. I mean, we've put out so much music, and I think there's only like two releases. And they're like singles of bands that I otherwise love that I've not entirely loved in the entire history of it. And Everything has been, like, fucking brilliant, basically, whether it's been a hit or not, it's like, we're all really proud of it. Mm. But I think it's like, this is very much phase one, and phase two is going to be, you know, we want to be, like, really ambitious about it, like, a meaningful label, like Elektra was, or Island was, Mm. like, historically. I think our goalposts keep moving. Yeah, and establishing that
2: culture as well, you know, because like, yeah. we've got you know, we want to keep that strong identity and kind of like keep surprising people with like mm-hmm. amazing music which they're not expecting. So yeah. And
4: by like, Transgressive now should exist beyond the three of us. Mm-hmm. Like moving forward it should be like a, a thing because uh, there's a whole
2: trying to, <laughs> 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 try to build a cult.
4: Trying to build a cult. Essentially, if like the culture is right, the ethos is right, it can be better.
2: Send your funds, too.
4: <laughs> please. Literally, let's do a just giving page. Why not? Um,
2: We're a charity. Available
4: right? for weddings.
1: And on that note, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, we, anything yeah. you want to add, guys? Uh, no, pretty, pretty good. What's the thing that you're most excited about today?
4: Right now. Right now. I honestly think the best album we've ever done yeah. is the Let's Eat Grammar album. In 14 years, this is the one. It's like...
2: We've literally just announced um, it last week. And I, I so cannot good. wait to it share is. it
4: with people because it's a masterpiece. And it's, it's really a 10 out of 10 album. It's, mm. And you know how rarely they come along. Like, I, I have a secret top five, <laughs> um, which I don't talk about. That so like you've released?
1: About. Yeah, in, in, oh. in my mind.
4: Um, and this is this is in there and I never talk about it when it is one of the top fives because it's unfair on everyone else but it's so (laughs) fucking good it's just like it's an essential album Um, yeah
2: I think that and also yeah, you know got um Sophie was playing her uh, you know audiovisual debut show in London uh, last week and that was just you know crossing every boundaries of um, everything really ever seen like, yeah it's
4: incredible so emotional and yeah. vital and just like it
2: turns you inside out really it's um in
4: fantastic. a pleasurable way it's amazing like... It's like, at, at moments of that show were like, like, high interpretive dance, moments of it were like, all tecra but fun, and it just, I've never heard, like, mm. there's one moment in that show that I've I've never heard sound like it, and, and it's just, like, mind-blowing, mm, really. Mm, mm. Genius. So that's, much good stuff.
1: That's the point, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
2: Cool,
0: thank you very much. Thank you. you. Here's the next 15. Wasn't that fascinating? As I said before, if you're interested in the business behind music, Transgressive are a great example of a label that's really doing it right. So go and follow the guys on socials. Um, I'm going to leave you with this weird and wonderful exclusive from Transgressive's Takeover edition of Flying Vinyl, Um, the the one that Tim was talking about actually in the interview. It's a Wolf Alice remix of Let's Eat Grandma's Eat Shiitake Mushrooms. We'll